Hello and welcome. You're listening to Southern Reverend, a podcast from a pastor in Georgia about the Christian faith, work in ministry, and life in the South. I'm your host, Joel Mooneyhan, and in this season of Eastertide, we are looking through the book of Acts and learning what happens when believers in Jesus speak up whenever they hear someone ask, can I get a witness? Whoever you are and wherever this finds you, I hope that you find something meaningful here to take with you. So get your Bible, open it to the book of Acts, and without further ado, here we go. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. And I encourage you to get your Bible and follow along because we're going to spend a lot of time going through the passage sort of verse by verse, or at least phrase by phrase. It takes place immediately after Peter and John have performed a miracle, healing a man who was born unable to walk. Upon his healing, he begins raising a scene, drawing attention to Peter and John in a very public place. And Peter seizes the moment to give a speech to those who have gathered around to see what's happening. And there's a lot we can learn from how Peter takes the reins of the situation and what he says in the moment. Now, first, a few things about the speech itself. Peter's message is at once direct and loaded. And in Luke's recollection of this event, he covers in seven verses Israel's historical, political, and religious landscape and lays out Peter's case for repentance and allegiance to Christ. At first glance, this speech seems a little aggressive and harsh, but as we'll see, Peter actually lands on a graceful note in a way that stands as an example for those of us who are called upon to give witness to Christ in our own lives. And I'll read it here to give you a little bit of context. Starting in verse 12, Peter addresses the people. Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses." And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of all of you. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, Peter begins by saying, men of Israel. This opening phrase turns the mind of Peter's audience to their own unique vocation as God's chosen people. Forget what you think about patriotism and nationalism now. To first century Jews, Israel was a homeland, a bloodline, a faith, a way of life. Israel was not just a nation. It was an identity all the way down to the bone. Wrapped up in that identity was the underlying responsibility to be God's representatives on earth, a duty that the religious elites took very seriously. Immediately, Peter is bringing all of this to the front of their minds to consider while he lays out the rest. The very next thing Peter addresses is the power by which this beggar has been healed. 
not by Peter or John's righteousness or goodness, but something else. There's a film theory called Chekhov's gun. Basically, it means that if a gun is shown hanging above a fireplace in a scene in a movie, logic would dictate that the gun will be used later on. And it works for anything. If an item is shown in a way to draw attention to itself, then it should come into play later. Peter bringing up the cause for this miracle will work similar to this. He draws attention to it, but he doesn't address it just yet. And this will come back around in a moment. Next is this phrase, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now this was common shorthand to remind people of God's promises to his nation and to the way it was renewed generation after generation. Each of these men represents both faithful obedience to God and at the same time represents God's steadfastness and the certitude of God's promises. It invokes both the historical stream of Israel's story, but also the redemptive theme that continually plays out in history. But then Peter adds to it, saying, The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. This further invokes the history of God's prophets and recalls the servant from Isaiah 52 and 53. By adding the name of Jesus in this context, he's placing Jesus in the company of the three great patriarchs of Israel's history and also connecting Jesus to the writings of the prophets. In this way, Jesus is both the continuation of Israel's history and the fulfillment of Yahweh's promises. In verses 14 and 15, Peter riffs on the scandal of Jesus' execution and does so in an interesting verbal parallel. Jesus is condemned to death by Pilate, who is an earthly authority, in exchange for a murderer. And then Peter asserts that the men listening, or at least their authorities, have killed the author of life, who God, a heavenly authority, has raised from the dead. And if this was all Peter had to say, it would be a very dire speech indeed. But he doesn't leave them here, though. There is hope. With Jesus, there is always hope. So a moment ago, I mentioned the film theory of Chekhov's gun. It's the introduction of an item of significance and then the payoff by its use later in the narrative. We're now paying off the question of how this beggar was healed. And it wasn't by the goodness of Peter or John, by their righteousness or their favor with God, but by the name of Jesus and by faith in his name. This not only pays off the question on everyone's mind from the beginning of how this man was healed, but it also demonstrates that it is faith in Christ, not adherence to dogma, that has true redemptive power. This single statement dismantles a misconception held by people then that has survived in some ways even now, that a person's deeds or righteousness are what determines their favor in the eyes of God. This belief is a lie. As Peter says, it is faith in the power of Christ alone that saves that and nothing else because we can never be good enough anyway which brings us to the hope peter recognizes that their actions in condemning christ were in ignorance of god's purposes 
But there is good news. It turns out that even Christ's suffering actually fulfills the redemptive purpose of God for humanity. Even though these men have strayed in ignorance, there is hope to repent, to turn back to God so that their sins may be forgiven. And I love this because it tells us that there is always hope, that there's always a chance to set one's gaze upon Jesus. There's always grace to forgive when we don't know what we don't know. And there's always an invitation to let Christ do the hard work in us that we cannot do ourselves. Peter isn't condemning these men. What he's really saying is, hey, you missed something amazing, but I'm here to tell you about it, and it's not too late to join the party. actually means. Simply put, repentance is to turn around and go in the opposite direction from where you're already headed. It isn't related to asking for forgiveness, at least not in the way that many people think. It is related to the orientation of people's hearts and the direction in which they live their lives. It is a total reversal of direction, away from one thing and toward another. Peter is telling them to turn away from their ignorance so that their sins may be blotted out. And I think the order of this sentence is significant. It's an invitation to set one's sights upon Jesus first and let Jesus do the work of taking care of sin, as opposed to harping on people for their sins first and expecting them to be in any way attracted to Jesus. And this is where a lot of people get this wrong. You absolutely cannot berate people for their sins, point out all the ways that they are wicked or wretched, or otherwise diminish the image of God in them, and then expect them to see Jesus in that. However, if you show them Jesus, His goodness, His justice, His mercy, His grace, His love, then Jesus will reveal to them where they fall short, and He will do the hard and holy work of forgiving them. He's the only one who can do that anyway. It's our job to simply make the introduction. Peter, in case you forgot, once denied even knowing Jesus. Three times. His whole story in the Gospels is one of ignorance of God's purposes through Jesus, a conversation that Jesus had to have with him specifically more than once. And now, Peter is talking to men who have acted in ignorance of Christ as well. It seems to me that Peter makes this speech instead of John because Peter had the unique perspective of someone who had struggled with his own ignorance and doubt, and Christ had seen him through to the other side of it. This speech could only have been made by Peter. 
And so here he takes an opportunity to turn a moment where all eyes were on him and turn everyone's attention to Christ. And he does so in a way that only he could have done. And it stands here for us as a challenge to pay attention to the times and the places where we have opportunities to share our witness in ways that only we can, and to people who might only understand it from us. Our experiences give us perspectives, and those perspectives make us uniquely suited for our witness. We shouldn't downplay those things in ourselves, especially if they give us the chance to share the good news with others. This has been a big passage for such a few verses, but as we wind this thing down and as I reflect on it myself, it brings up several questions in my mind. Just as Peter recalls the history of God's work in the life of Israel and how Jesus' presence fulfills God's promises, it causes me to think on God's work in my own life and how Christ's presence has shown God's faithfulness to me. And I wonder what perspectives do I have from those experiences that might help me bear witness when opportunities arise. And I invite you to think on those questions as well. We're all uniquely suited to share the gospel, whether we realize it or not. There are people who might only receive the gospel well coming from you because of how your experiences relate to them or because of your relationship with them in the first place. Whichever the case, Pay attention to your story and the chances you have to share it. If Christ can use Peter, he can use you. Thank you all again for listening. There are more episodes of Southern Reverend on this channel available on Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. And you can also listen and read more from me at my website, www.southernreverend.com. You can also follow me over on Instagram and Facebook at the handle Southern Reverend. And if you found this episode meaningful, I'd love it if you shared it with your friends, your family, your coworkers, total strangers, whoever. We'll be back soon for more in the series, Can I Get a Witness? Until then, have a great day, take care, and be good to us.